ora, I'm Erica Wilkinson, New Zealand's Acting Threatened Species Ambassador, and this is the Doc Sounds of Science podcast. Every episode, we talk about work being done behind the scenes by Doc's technical experts, scientists, rangers, and the experts in between. Kia ora, ko Erica Wilkinson tene, he kona i purangi tene, e pa ana kinga Sounds of Science. Today we're diving into the wild world of wildlife trade with one of Doc's endangered species officers, Avi Narula. Kia ora, Avi. Tēnā koe, Erika. Ko Avi Narula tōkou noa. My name is Avi Narula and I work for the Development Conservation Society team. Kia ora. Today Avi and I are talking about CITES, which is an international agreement prohibiting the import and export of endangered animals and plants. Now, what is a CITES officer and also why is a CITES officer? Well, it's not super easy to explain, so I'm going to let you do it. Why don't you tell us about your role? Yeah, kia ora, Erica. Um, thanks. Uh, yeah, so my role um, sits within the National Compliance Team at the Department of Conservation. We're a small unit of uh, five people within the CITES team. And as I'll explain in a bit, um, we constitute the New Zealand CITES Management Authority. I guess the core role is is really to facilitate the legal trade or the international cross-border movement of um, endangered and threatened species that are listed on CITES. And equally, um, any trade or, or international cross-border movement of, that is illegal, we manage those uh, cases, um, we follow up, and, and in some occasions we enforce um, or further enforce um, the illegal trade. Um, and I guess the second point to what, what I do as a CITES officer or, or endangered species officer is work really, really closely with our um, partner border agencies. So the New Zealand Customs Service and Ministry for Primary Industries, the, uh, particularly the biosecurity team. Cross-border movement and um, working with customs sounds like border control. How, how is DOC's role different and why DOC? Yeah, so... It's an element of border control. Why DOC? Well, DOC, um, we're sort of a three-pronged attack, if you like, when it comes to controlling our border for uh, legal and illegal wildlife trade. So that's where they come into it. And under our Trade Endangered Species Act, which is the New Zealand legislation that we operate under to enforce and to implement societies, uh, New Zealand Customs officers and um, MPI biosecurity officers are also um appointed um, and have the powers under that act. So hence why we work really closely with three of us. So why is CITES important, high-level view? So um, CITES is the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species of Wild Flora and Fauna, in other words, plants and animals. It's an international treaty that was uh, came into effect in 1975 and it accords protection to over 38,000 species of, of those which are affected by trade. And we use the word trade quite a lot. It means international cross-border movement. The way it works is CITES is your framework for guidance or, or global guidance of, of how to regulate and control the movement of animals and plants that are protected. And New Zealand has to do their part, and every country that is signed to CITES does their part it's really important for us to be an active part of that because we're helping the global efforts to uh, protect all those species that are affected in the wild because of trade. So without an agreement like CITES, what, what happens? 
Yeah, so without the international agreement like CITES uh, in the world, what you'd see happen um, is you'd see a significant decline in wild populations of many species of plants and animals that are affected by what we know as trade. Um, you take your elephants and rhinos, for example, that are illegally poached for things like ivory or rhino horn and sent and smuggled or, or trafficked illegally. You know, you take amazing animals like pangolins and they're illegally poached and their scales are trafficked over to Southeast Asian countries um, in, their t- in, in huge amounts, like tons. And that's what's causing significant decline in these species in the wild. So you would see animals go extinct because of, um, you know, the trade in either live specimens or their parts or derivatives, really. So that's just the reality of it. Without CITES, you'd start to see a lot of these species we know fall over. And the worst part is that CITES, I think, is it's, it's even more important because if you protect iconic species or any sort of any species of plant and animal, the rest of the ecosystems that they live in are also protected. I always give the analogy, you protect the elephant, you protect the rhino, and you protect everything in between that, that species or that animal and a dung beetle, you know? Without the elephant, the dung beetle don't survive. And how did you get into this kind of work? It's very, it's very specific. How did I get into it? I've had a very long tenure in the wildlife and conservation um, industry, if you will. Got an extensive experience in the captive animal industry in the zoological world. Um, I've had a bit of marine mammal rescue, um, some animal and wildlife control work up in Canada as well and some educational outreach work in other places around the world, including um, the US and South Africa. And, and I hear that you've worked with big cats. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's certainly my, my passion as big cats, and I have um, been very grateful to be able to work with a variety of species um, of big cats, um, both here in New Zealand, but also in South Africa and, and um, the US as well. So, so where did you grow up? Uh, I grew up in the mighty Tamaki Makoto, um, out east, uh, in east, east Auckland. And that's where I went through school and was, I guess, born and bred there. And as a little old Kiwi boy, um, just having a, a huge passion for wildlife from as early as I can remember, about three years of age, watching every single documentary I could, mostly on big cats and, and having very supportive parents as well to to follow my passion and my dream and you know I'd waver between wanting to become a veterinarian to just working with animals to going out into the wild and living out in the bush and or, or doing something what we call in situ conservation now. Are your family conservationists as well? Yeah I think they've grown to be. I'm I'm originally my, my ethnic origins are Indian and so um, if you think about some of the traditional sense of, of Indian families. Oh, I guess my hand slapped. My mum hears me say this, but um, um, but you know, they growing up, um, the traditional sense is the we need to become a doctor, or a lawyer, or some sort of a, a you know, a, a great career. But when I when I I remember telling my grandmother about the age of twelve that I wanted to work with animals, and I, and I know. Her and my my mum's sure, what? Um, my dad is always on sport, but yeah. And as they've seen what um, 
for what I've been able to do and and the experiences I've I've had and and seeing this what I deem to be success, um, and I've been able to share that passion. They've certainly grown into their own conservationists and advocates, and you know they tell their friends and and extended family, if you will. But yeah, that's sort of uh, you know from a very early age, I've always wanted to work with animals in some capacity. What do you like most about your work? Yeah, the the parts that are really gratifying and rewarding is obviously um, being able to to make a positive difference or feel like we are here in New Zealand and, and sort of flying the flag for protected species globally, but also being able to fly the flag in terms of being ambassadors or um, advocates for international species for Kiwis. You know, um, so yes, uh, enforcing and penalising illegal trade into New Zealand is is certainly a way that we do that, but more so it's the proactiveness that we try and have within the CITES team and within um, yeah, the amount of outreach that we're trying to do now more than ever to try and get the message out there about the plight of, of animals in an international sense mm. and why that is, especially when it relates to CITES and, and the trade in, in certain animals. Um, most people know about the elephant ivory industry and how horrific that is and elephants are declining and same with rhino for example they're kind of your marquee species um and so you can you can lead off the back of, of them uh, of, mm. of those species as being iconic flagship species so uh you mentioned pangolins get uh trafficked so much so why why them and then something else like orchids you wouldn't consider that those two are the the main things we're after yeah pangolins the most cutest weirdest looking animal um the most highly uh, the, the most illegally trafficked mammal on the planet um they are unfortunately trafficked um well their scales are predominantly the animals are poached um in the wild or, or taken from the wild if you will then you know killed and then their, their scales are sent over to southeast asia and to china to be used in traditional medicines traditional chinese medicines that's that's still going on for that very reason. There are some other horrific things that I've heard about that, uh, you know, pangolins are put into soups and, you know, feces, et cetera. It's, you know, but for the most part, it's um, it's the scales that are used. And orchids? Yeah, same thing. Orchids um, take a um, species known as dendrobium, a genus known as dendrobium, for example, are used in their raw form in Chinese, um, traditional Chinese medicine, and Southeast Asian medicine for, um, I guess they have traditional or mm. sort of medicinal value to them. Um, and so they're either used in teas or ground down and used in medicines, etc. What What do you think is the biggest misconception people have about CITES work? I think the biggest, there's probably two that are the two biggest misconceptions that I've seen in the last four years, of, you know, almost four years of being with the team and, and in this world is, that watch strap, that leather watch strap that's made out of alligator skin, for example, no one connects the fact that that actually came from in a real-life alligator or the, the shoes that are made out of reptile skin actually came from a live reticulated python or, you know, or um, what's in my medicine, in my traditional Chinese medicine, actually came from a real animal. So this it's the connectiveness to... to the, the item or the product in your hand, the actual animal, that's one of the biggest misconceptions people see that I'm seeing that people just don't realise. And then the other one probably is that um, despite the provenance of your item, so if you've got a very, very old P1 
piano with ivory keys. Because elephants uh, and ivory is listed on the convention, you or you buy, let's say you buy something from a store that you've legally purchased, you've bought it in good faith. If it's comprised of a species that is protected by CITES, it still needs or has some form of regulation or control to it. So it still needs a permit. So many cases, people go overseas or purchase something from overseas and they bring it into New Zealand or import it in. And they say, well, I bought it at a store or, you know, it's been in the family for 400 years or it's, you know, I purchased this from an auction. Well, yes, that's fine. But without a permit, we can't prove its provenance and that was legally purchased or harvested or sustainably you know, bought, or, like I said, have. So, yeah, we, we talk about it with a lot of people like it, you know, a permit is like a passport for your specimens. And that just relates back to what how CITES works, really, is it's on a licensing and a, and, and a licensing system, a permitting system. Okay, so I can bring grandma's piano in, but I need a permit, the piece of paper that goes with it. Yeah, so that, that, that actually states, yes, it's very, very old. Um, it predates the convention. It predates 1975 when the convention came into effect. But it's something official that's come from CITES authority to CITES authority to say or to into a country to say, yes, that is very, very old. Okay. It's very similar to us going to an international border. And I like to use this analogy for people to get their head around it. Me and you, we're all well and good. We're true. We're great law-abiding citizens. But if I don't have a passport, with me when I go to an international border to prove who I am, then I'm not getting into that country. Then the same thing goes with any items or goods or or even, you know, whether it's manufactured or unmanufactured um, items. So you need to be able to prove provenance and legal sustainable, you know, legal harvesting or sustainable acquisition. That's such a good analogy. I, I feel like when you're talking about um, the buying it from a real shop as well, I think a lot of the time people think of CITES as what you can bring on a plane, but is it online shopping as well? What, what kind of stuff has, an, um, has been an online shopping problem for you? Yeah, actually, so before I maybe tackle the online shopping, which has become even more evident during the last two years of the pandemic, but you know, our three main pathways are certainly a passenger pathway through international airports. Um, we've got the mail pathway. Um, and we've also got the cargo pathway. Those are the three main channels um, that people can import things or items or goods that have potentially sighted species in them. Yeah, you're right. Just um, So it's not just the pass bring something in on you through an airport, but, yeah, certainly through online shopping recently, we've seen a huge increase in that with the pandemic and no one being able to travel anywhere. So, yeah, it's really just, I guess what we've found is people are just – buying things off your Amazons, your Ebays and other international websites, thinking it's fine and legit, legit and legal to do so and then and it should have no issues coming into New Zealand without thinking further that, hey, actually what I'm buying may be an endangered or a protected species. I might have to do a bit more thinking and digging into what else is needed yeah. to legally import it into New Zealand. A lot of people have the misconception that, oh, I bought something legally in a country, so that should be fine. I can just bring it into New Zealand, no dramas. But as soon as you, that item or that those goods get on a plane and come across an international border, there are other rules and regulations that may that do apply, and in this case, CITES or any protected animal or plant. There are three different types of um, passenger, mail, and cargo. People must try and bring in weird stuff through all of those 
things. Can you give me a few examples of what you've come across? Oh, gosh. Um, yeah. Look, cargo, we see, you know, at the moment, in recent times, we're seeing a lot of household moves back to New Zealand after, after the pandemic, but obviously during the pandemic, people want to get out and get back home. And people have acquired all sorts of weird, wonderful taxidermied, you know, trophies of skins of, of, of mammals or um, really old, like, shells they've collected that are potentially listed on CITES, um, you know, old turtle shell, turtle shells. And through the uh, mail pathway, we're seeing weird and wonderful, like it's just hobbyists through the mail pathway. People wanted to see weird curiosities online and go, oh, that would be cool to sit on the mantelpiece. So like, yeah, big owls, like great grey owls that are a full text and great grey owl coming in. And, and coming in from weird and wonderful places like um, – uh, Russia and European countries. I've seen. Um, we saw so a saiga antelope. We saw a um, a whip, like almost like a bull whip, with the hoof of a saiga antelope come in um, a little while ago, which was bizarre as well. We've seen um, you know knives that have handles made of hippo tusks, or um, I'm trying to think of what other. Um, species it came from but like things like that have come through we've had all sorts of, like you know crocodile skin and, and really strange uh, looking purses and products manufactured out of python skin some of the musical instruments that have um, the chinese musical instruments that have they have um, python skin as the part that makes up the drum so yeah this this honestly all sorts that come through that are that are very different. Yeah, it's every day is slightly different. Keeps it interesting. Uh, and what happens when something that comes across is a tanga? What do you do then? Yeah, it's a highly sensitive subject. Um, it depends the tanga's Māori or if it's you know, I guess tanga to to different cultures is, is many different things and and something that we talk about quite a lot with our border agency partners. And amongst the team, and, and I guess, and something that is probably developing more and more as we move more and more into that space around active protection of especially Māori Taonga. To boil it back a little bit, under CITES framework, there is no cultural bias to any culture. So, uh, and, and the, the items that are essentially seen as Taonga to that culture. So, if you think of um, First Nations people of, of Canada or Native Americans, Eagle feathers, products made out of grizzly bear or, or black bear are considered taonga. Fijian tambua, which is um, necklaces made out of sperm whale teeth, are taonga. Um, and rightfully so for other cultural uh, or cultures, if you will. With New Zealand taonga, particularly we're talking about things like um, whalebone, large whalebone that's carved into necklaces, passed down through um, iwi, you know, generation of generation of the niwi. Um, also things like kakapo or kia feathers or kurawais, things like that. Under the Trade and Endangered Species Act here in New Zealand, we have a an exemption for items or goods that were acquired originally in New Zealand. So, for example, someone takes a whalebone carving out of New Zealand to another country and brings it back into New Zealand and doesn't have any permits. When we implement CITES in New Zealand, we use the Trade and Endangered Species Act. It's our legislation. 
And under our legislation, we have an exemption for New Zealand acquired uh, items, so they can come in without uh, exempt from permitting. So we try and facilitate, I guess, that um, through through that part or look at it that lens. But unfortunately, for other species, like other taonga, if you will, like Fiji and Tambua, which is which is a big one that we see come through, Fijian nationals will bring that in if they're visiting or if they live here, they bring it back from Fiji. Um, and these are necklaces that have been family heirlooms for years within their family. And it's always a tough one um, for us, but if they've come in without paperwork or their appropriate CITES documentation, then unfortunately under the Act, it's pretty pretty black and white there. They have to be seized and are forfeit to the Crown. And that's always a difficult one. Um, but at the end of the day, it is a sperm whale tooth. So, yeah, that is that is what happens. That's why it's so important for us. To, and we've done a bit of outreach recently, uh, I should say last year, the year before, I forget now, but in the last couple of years, we've done outreach over to Fiji and asking the Fijian um, societies authorities to to get out and, and at least see if they can get the word out around if you're taking Tabua overseas, especially to New Zealand, please get a permit. So so let's really emphasise any animal and plant products you're trying to bring out, just get a permit, yeah? Just check, check, because, you know, you just always check um, before you travel because by the time you do start travelling and get to New Zealand, it's already too late because we cannot accept retrospectively issued permits. So you must always check. If you're thinking of buying something online, if you're going to a tropical destination, one of the Pacific Island countries, and you decide to pick up a nautilus shell or some giant clams off the beach, bring back, you know, as a souvenir or, um, you know, product made out of turtle shell, you need to make sure you're thinking about, oh, do I need a permit or do I need something to help me legally bring that into New Zealand. Or if you're like my sister, sand in a bottle. Sand in a bottle, yep. Um, and your team have been working with iwi here in Aotearoa to ensure iwi ōropu travelling overseas for cultural performance reasons know that they need to check before travelling with Taonga, is that right? Yeah, that's right. And I guess in our, in our efforts to, to have active protection for um, Māori Taonga, Aotearoa's Taonga, we, um, uh, and it's ramping up actually, our outreach efforts will be ra- ramping up in that space with travelling overseas with Tonga. But we have done a bit of outreach um, initially and we started to ramp that up. And of course, then COVID hit. So then everything got kind of shelved a little bit because no one could travel overseas. But yes, what um, our advice is to any UE that are travelling overseas with things like Māori Tonga. In, in the form of whalebone carvings, even if it's worn around you, is that you need to make sure that you you check in with us or Te Papa Te Whai, Department of Conservation, the Society's Management Authority here, just to make sure that you have the right documentation you need when going to another country because it, unfortunately if it gets seized and then if it's whalebone and it doesn't have the appropriate documentation in another country and it is seized, there's not much we can do to get that precious time back. One of the cool things we did was help facilitate legal entry um, of um, New Zealand Olympic teams, Kurawai, recently to the Winter Olympics and to the Summer Olympics. And we'll have to probably do it again now, obviously, with the Commonwealth Games coming up. So that's really cool, you know, um, being a part of that process to make sure that the teams Kurawai um, for the flag bearers gets to go over and, is, and goes over there legally. Oh, that is a cool job. Can you tell us about some of the sad things that you've had to seize? Oh, 
Um, yeah, you know, the, the hard ones um, that you need to try and compartmentalize your emotions and um, what's well, hard to do, we're all humans, is is people's family heirlooms. Um, mm. Those are always the tough ones, whether it's, um, you know, Appendix 1, highly protected sea turtle shell that's been in a family for years um, coming across from the islands and, you know, it means so much to them. But under the, you know, under the Act here, if it comes, and you know, see all, all sea turtles are, are, are really highly protected, they're in Appendix 1, the same as elephants and rhinos. And so you definitely need to get the right permits. And if it arrives here without those, they are seized. So, yeah, I know personally I've had to seize a couple of family heirlooms that were turtle shells that were just, yeah, real heartbreak, heartbreaking. Um, it's always difficult with tambour, um, which is the sperm whale teeth necklaces. Um, the good part is we don't dispose of those, and, and they, at, at points, periodic points, um, we repatriate that all back to the Fijian government. Yeah, we've had a lot of people, unfortunately, get really upset with us on the phone uh, you know, because of their items, and there's just not a heck of a lot we can do in terms of our legislation or leniency. And um, the other things that um, have been people's really high end crocodile skins that they've had, or, or um, jackets and shoes and belts, all, all manufactured out of uh, crocodilia, so alligator or crocodile leather. So yeah, that's. I mean, there's there's a there's been a huge variety. Just giving you a bit of a snapshot of yeah. of the types of things that really. Uh, are difficult. You've had such an incredible career um, doing so many different things. If you think of your doc career, what's been your best day at work? Can you think of one? The one that I think will stand out for me just based off your question is um, we got um, intel and we got a report through from New Zealand Customs to say that a huge, two huge crates of ivory had been seized that have come in through the cargo pathway without any documentation whatsoever. Um, and it just said ivory. And um, that obviously all got our alarm bells ringing, if you like, and red flags up. And, and so we um, promptly went out to um, the facility that they were all being detained at and um, managed to do – this was a really cool one because I hadn't probably done a co-joint inspection with New Zealand Customs officers and MPI by security officers and us all at the same time. And so when we got there, we opened up these gigantic crates. And, and even in, in sort of within a couple of days to we got there, I had spoken to the importer who didn't, who had just bought this, this ivory from a friend, quote unquote, in the US who had closed down an art gallery and just shipped all these highly worked carved ivory items. And I knew that in uh, the state of California, where they had come from, there's a total ban on ivory, um, both importing and exporting. And so, you know, there was alarm bells ringing. Um, he did mention that it was mammoth ivory um, as well, which obviously mammoths being extinct, they're not listed on the convention. They're not protected by CITES being an extinct species. So, again, going into this inspection, knowing that I have previous knowledge that a lot of times when People trade in mammoth ivory, which, you know, the permafrost is melting up in you know, parts of Russia and Siberia and, and that sort of Arctic area that's still there. And you are seeing a lot of evidence of mammoth now. But there have been lots of reports around the world. Elephant ivory, modern-day elephant ivory, is also smuggled and thrown in and made to look like mammoth ivory, right? So you're going into this inspection with the other border agencies knowing all of this. So... That's the type of thing you're like, oh, 
this is this is quite significant or could be. So, you know, having to methodically unwrap a lot of these tasks that were sometimes about some of the tasks that we were, were seeing were highly worked, all with sort of Chinese cultural traditional carvings in them actually. And they were highly worked and the price tags on some of these were, you know, 140 to 300,000 US dollars. You're thinking, holy smokes. Yeah, like I said, holding these, uh, unwrapping all of there was about almost 80 pieces from, you know, 30 centimeters long to well over a meter and a half. And sure enough, some of them were very evidently mammoth just based on the, the physical characteristics of the tusks and these long, curved, sweeping tusks that are very indicative of mammoth. But others, you just, you know, we here, this is where we're having to put all our ID skills to to the test of, of um, how do you distinguish between elephant ivory and mammoth ivory? And there's some key identifying characteristics that you look at, you look at Schrager lines and you look at characteristics of the ivory, especially Schrager lines. And when you don't have any evidence of that, you, you're scratching your head going, hmm, we've gone through quite a few and there's other diagnostic um, ways to ID mammoth versus elephant. We ended up having to send this all for further DNA sampling. So we managed to use um, the the services of um, ESR here in Auckland um, for DNA sampling, which was quite quite amazing actually to to see how all that process works and the methods to be able to do that. And um, we also did some radiocarbon dating as well. And we did a, a, a quite a large we did a, a fair few samples as a subset of these you know eighty odd items to just sort of narrow down if anything to come back as modern day elephant in terms of the dent the genome sequencing, the DNA sequencing. Lo and behold, and that, this is this is sort of the best day, is that I was actually holding items that were over 40,000 years old in my hand, and that's just a, a mind-blowing thing. To, so, yeah, it didn't work out to be modern-day elephant. It was all mammoth in the end, and so it was released to the importer, um, and no, no CITES documentation was required. However, just the fact of knowing that potentially there's elephant ivory, you know, smuggled in there or and then the fact that i'm holding something that's huge and it came from a mammoth was just like mind-blowing that's the best day for sure it was also the strangest day i'd say one of the strangest anyway i mean it's sure surely it's up there even with a job like yours it's incredible that you you did dna sampling in order to test like how how intensive yeah and carbon dating uh, um it's quite impressive to, to see how you can use a lot of those wildlife forensic methods to help with uh, CITES operations in New Zealand. Okay, so we've got a scenario for you. Um, you're at a school. I know you've, you've said you do a lot of education outreach. Maybe they're about 11 years old. You're trying to get them into conservation. What is the coolest conservation fact that you can think of to hook them on your mahi? Oh, my gosh, Erica, there's so many. Animals and plants are just the most amazing things, way better than humans, aren't they, um, in terms of facts. I'd say, you know, some of the ones, if you're talking about young minds and getting them hooked on on the mahi that we do, you know, talking about things like, look, gorillas are eight times stronger than us. You know, if you think about the strongest human and then think about an adult male gorilla and it's eight times stronger than you, or a cheetah can run as fast as your car goes on the motorway, you know, at 120 kilometres an hour or um, sperm whales, they sleep vertically. Who knew? And, and, um, you know, if you, if you're into insects, then, you know, you've got the Queen's Alexandra butter, birdwing butterfly, and that has a wingspan the size of a medium sized bird. It's the wingspan's about 27, 25 centimeters long. So 
Um, or if you like birds of prey, then martial eagles from Africa, if they, you know, if they landed on your head and used their talons, they'd squash your head like a watermelon. You know, um, big cats, some of them purr and some of them roar, but you can't do both. So, you know, you think about a, a, a mountain lion or a puma, they purr, they can't roar. They're known as a lesser cat or a lesser big cat, whereas if you look at a lion or a tiger, they roar. They can't purr. That's fascinating. Just cool cool things like that that um, allow allow kids to understand and be inspired by how amazing, and these are obviously all CITES-listed species, but how amazing, you know, animals can be. They just blow you away, and that's enough to inspire young young minds to to, perse- to persevere and to, to pursue a career in conservation. Absolutely, and it's so important to hook people in with a, a nature fact like that, and as soon as you get them to care, they're... They're in. They're not going to try and bring in ivory. No, or or something that they shouldn't be, or at least check before they do, right? So uh, have you ever had a moment in the field where everything just went wrong? Yeah. <laughs> yep, quite a few of them, actually. <laughs> if I think about some previous roles, one of the roles that I had um, previously when I lived in Canada was as an animal and wildlife control officer in the city of London in Ontario. And um, that was also a role you just knew. It was like a box of chocolates. You never knew what you are going to get. And this this day happened to be a good old cold Canadian winter's day, minus 25 degrees. And, um, yeah, we talk about cold New Zealand, and that was that's certainly cold. Um, and anyway, this day started off like any other sort of, um, you know, there's a few different call-outs, but it's quickly escalated to just out of out of another, another level, really. Um, in... Uh, in my role, we would see, unfortunately, a lot of you know urban wildlife like skunks and raccoons and coyotes, um, the odd deer that um, succumb to different diseases that they would catch. Um, whether it's distemper, which is one of the main ones, um, not too much that you would come across as being rabies, um, but certainly distemper and some other 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 conditions up there, to name a few. But um, in this particular occasion, I got called out to a raccoon. And if you've been to Canada or North America, raccoons look cuddly and cute and really, really, you know, but, and you get close to them, if you threaten them or if they're not well, holy, they are scarier than, for me, they're scarier than a big cat. Um, raccoons, they have this god awful blood curdling scream that they can do as well. And, um, and this animal, unfortunately, was highly, dis- like, it was suffering really badly from distemper. And we use the pole nooses, you know, you've seen them occasionally with, use them with dogs and we use them just from a safe distance we could secure the head and, and absolutely move them. Unfortunately with distempered raccoons they're, they're picked up like like distempered skunks, which I'll get to in a sec, but this call out was, you know, it was ten o'clock in the morning. Well, okay, just another, you know, it's another raccoon unfortunately. Gets pulled, um, it's secured, put into a transport crage in the back of my car and I'm right, I'm gonna head back to the veterinary department um, at the rescue center at the at the animal centre there to um to get it looked at and and treated if, if possible. Otherwise, you know, unfortunately they get euthanized. But um, it's better that than them suffering. Sure enough, within a half hour after heading back, I uh, get another urgent call out. Um, a lady's called up the animal center and has said that she's got two skunks um, in her house. And if anyone knows what skunks are like, I mean, you, you get sprayed by a skunk, you are not getting it off for a long time. Like people's dogs get by skunks and it is the most god awful pungent smell you've ever smelled in your life anyway this this lady had two of them 
crawling around the, in her house. And unfortunately, you know, skunks are primarily nocturnal. So coming out at nighttime, just like raccoons, uh, and through the day, sorry, is, is not normal. So straight away, alarm bells go, oh my gosh, okay, how am I going to get two skunks running around someone's house of, every, every, you know, of all places? Uh, sure enough, tight basement unit trying to get this pole in there. Anyway, you happen to secure these two, and of course the pressure on my sweaty armpits, just thinking about it, um, trying to get these skunks without um, getting sprayed is, is one skill to certainly learn. Um, and this this lady who was screaming at me, got these skunks, got them into the, into the van as well, um, so you can imagine I have a raccoon in there that's very aggressive, two skunks that are spraying the entire van. I'm sure they sprayed the, the raccoon. So I've got a van smelling of skunk. Um, have you ever smelled skunk? No, I haven't, but I don't know how to find that on Google. <laughs> yeah, it's just, just an experience you have to go through, I guess. Um, um, and then so I get them in there, and then I get called to one of the local hospitals, and in behind the local hospitals, uh, another urgent call that day, and this must have been just after lunch, uh, an urgent phone call about a fawn, a baby deer, that's been attacked by a coyote and it's had its tail bitten off and part of its leg has been chewed and so it's bleeding quite profusely. Now, trying to catch a little baby fawn that's scared, that's petrified, injured, running in and around the compounds of the back of a hospital proves to be quite interesting. So you can imagine all these people running around with nets and blankets and, yeah, yeah I, you know, would have made for a pretty entertaining um, yeah, get your popcorn for that one. But we managed to secure this fawn finally after running around for almost an hour trying to catch him. Poor guy. Um, stopped the bleeding. Got <laughs> He ended up sitting shotgun with me in the front seat because I didn't want him anywhere near the skunks. You know, he wasn't as bad as the other the skunks and the raccoons. So I've got this fawn. I don't never got a photo. But i got a fawn in the front seat with me cruising down all the way back to the animal centre. So you come back with, you know, it's almost like Noah's Ark a little bit. And, and, and with four wheels and you <laughs> shoot back. Long story short is, unfortunately, the skunks and the raccoons all had to get put down, but the fawn was able to be saved and we managed to um, patch it all up and um, release it back into the same bush area. Mum was waiting there, so good old Bambi got saved. But just towards, again, the end of the day, um, I get a phone call about a dog, a um, Victorian bulldog um, that has... Um, Attacked its owner and um, and savaged uh, its its his arm and put like sixty or seventy stitches, I believe it was. I didn't actually see it was all bandaged up, but he said about sixty or seventy stitches in it, which was like holy. And this dog was now on the loose, um, had jumped its fence and was on the loose in a very highly populated area, like a, a neighbourhood. And so um, having to call colleagues to come by, and when you have situations like that with dangerous dogs, you really um, you know, you, you need all your senses. And after a, a pretty harrowing, you know, four hours, I was like, oh, gosh, how am I going to do this? A um, couple of Red Bulls later and we managed to um, corner this dog into an area. Um, any kids playing on the streets, you know, that was kind of our job is get inside and stay away. And, th- and we had the police involved uh, as well. But we managed to secure this dog after quite a bit of running around. It was dark by now. It was still minus 25 degrees and still really cold. Really, really cold. Um, I'd say that would be um, a day when everything's gone to absolute anarchy, really, for me, in the day in the life of a, a wildlife control officer. 
that's um, but but you did everything that you could and I mean we need more people like you Avi what, what you can't oh, I'm I'm just a small fraction of the amount of amazing people out there I'm just one and yeah. what a missed photo opportunity um, that's what I'm crossing yeah, out yeah can you imagine <laughs> there's Bambi riding in the front that's seat that's right just hanging out so it has nothing really to do with size but I guess you know around a day when everything went to custard that's it's cooler than my work stories I'm not gonna lie um <laughs> what's something that you wish more people knew about CITES look the biggest one is that it exists that there is this international convention that exists and it and it serves to protect you know plants and animals and their populations in the wild that are that are being affected because of international trade um and not it's not just and I guess the other big point about CITES is it doesn't just it's not just about live animals and plants, raw products. It's, it's really also many, highly manufactured things as well, items and goods that are highly manufactured where, you know, you've got to turn your minds to when you're, when you're moving items and goods, uh, medicines, things like that, across international borders or more specifically here into New Zealand or out of New Zealand, that they may contain um, protected plants or animals in them. You really just need to do your due diligence and check and be a, a responsible Kiwi. Um, and to ensure that you, you know, if it does or potentially could, that you're asking the right questions um, and trying to seek the right information so that you know you don't contribute to the illegal wildlife trade in some res- in some way and that you're trying to do things in the, in the most responsible and sustainable way that you can. How can someone help you and your team do your work? Um, how can we, how can, you know, spread the message that there is this convention and that um, thousands of species are protected by it and, and that um, it's really important to check if you need any permits or documentation um, before you look to buy something weird and wonderful online or ask a family member to bring traditional medicines over into New Zealand with them now that the borders are opening. Or if you're looking to go on a tropical holiday over to one of the Pacific Islands, please check before you, you know, if you decide to pick up a souvenir like a clamshell or some, you know, coral off the beach um, or some earrings made of turtle shell, just know that you need to check that you might need a permit to bring them back into the country. Or you could face, you know, further penalties. And you can check on the DOC website. Is that right? Yeah, you, the, our DOC website, um, we have specific CITES web pages. It's doc.govt.nz forward slash CITES, which is C-I-T-E-S. So, yeah, the take-home message, think before you shop. Everybody plays their part. Really, um, we're not going to be able to protect all these species globally if not every, you know, everyone doesn't do their part to, to ensure that they um, are make sure everything's legal. Avi, you have such an important job that is one part in preventing the decline and extinction of so many species. Uh, I think you should be incredibly proud of what you do. Thank you so much for teaching us about it all. I feel much better prepared for a, a trip overseas or when even when I online shop. So thank you very much for being here. Kia ora, Erica. Thanks for the opportunity. And a um, big shout out to the rest of um, everyone that, that works in this space um, within the department. You're all superheroes. All, all wildlife warriors, yeah. Kia ora. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Erica Wilkinson, and this has been the Doc Sounds of Science podcast. This show is available wherever you get your podcasts, or you can stream it off our website, doc.gov.nz. 
This podcast is produced by Jane Ramage with sound and editing by Laura Honey. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and show our hardworking guests some love. Ka kite.